Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, good afternoon. My name is Charlie Banner. Uh, welcome to the second episode of Have We Got Planning News for You. Um, can I start by thanking you all for joining us? We're currently, um, the numbers still increasing, we're already well above our figures for last week. So thank you very much for that. Welcome back to those who joined uh, last week and hello to the newcomers. Um, as those who watched the last episode know, um, the idea behind this show is to provide an informative but just as, if not more importantly, an informal and light-hearted take on recent events in the world of planning. Um, as I reiterated last time, this isn't a webinar, there will be no slides, but there will be drinks. Um, I've got my beer this time, the Diet Coke has been put firmly to one side, cheers. Um, so strongly encourage you to, to watch uh, what follows on with a tipple of your choice. Um, as you know, this is a free show, but can I uh, remind you, there is a link in the invite to the um, NHS uh, Appeals Just Giving page. Uh, please feel free to make a donation to that or to a local charity of your choice to appreciate there are a range of other charities close to people's hearts too. A few little bits of housekeeping. Um, we suggest you use the gallery view function in Zoom. That will be easier to follow. If your connection is lost, simply rejoin using the same link and meeting ID. And please keep a record of that, uh, the ID um, and password, because uh, we're going to make that the same uh, for every week going forward to uh, make it easier for you to, to log in. Um, Please do provide, as per last week, any questions or comments in the Q&A function. Uh, we're not going to be able to answer them all in the time we've got, um, but if you'd like to follow anything up with us afterwards, we've created a section on our LinkedIn page where you can post questions and comments, and we'll go through those um, uh, later on today and, and tomorrow and subsequently. Please do follow our LinkedIn page because we'll be posting future updates on it, um, including um, information about future episodes. Um, you're all automatically muted and not visible to us. I'm not quite sure that's for your sake or ours. Or a bit of <laughs> um, but uh, a note of warning, uh, both for the panellists on screen and, and also everybody else when using Zoom or Teams or, or other video conferencing software. Did you know that the little box that you can see yourself on doesn't actually show the full extent of the screen that's visible to others on their screen? Uh, this was something that the, the news anchor, uh, Will Reeve, um, found out to his um, his detriment the hard way on Tuesday this week where he um, as we'll hopefully see in a moment uh, he ended up presenting the, uh, the the news wearing a suit on his top half and his boxer shorts on his bottom half so Sasha quick go and put some trousers on before anybody, uh, anybody you're wrong Charlie <laughs> I won't ask anybody else to confirm that you know people might see it already um another thing we we learned last week was how to experiment with different um zoom backgrounds um if you thought there was nothing more terrifying uh, than donald trump in the white house you're wrong um uh but actually i prefer um as a game of thrones fan 
this for my my chair's role uh, and i guess paul that makes you the king of the north uh, always charlie well spotted <laughs> Now, um, it's time to uh, introduce the panel. We might have to um, uh, introduce Mary once her um, technical gremlins are, are resolved. Um, but um, first of all, can I ask you to, to each you, starting with um, Chris, um, to say who you are and where you're dialing in from? Hello, my name is uh, Chris Young and uh, I'm a barrister at number five chambers and I am in Cheltenham, lots of people last week said it uh, looked like Hogwarts, although somebody rather unkindly said in a conference this week, I appear to be in a Royal Mail sorting office. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, Chris, you managed to have had a haircut since we last saw each other. Um, yeah, yeah, that didn't go so well. You can't see the back. Will you be donating <laughs> the trimmings to Sasha? <laughs> Uh, and uh, Sasha White, um, Trinity College, Cambridge, reading law. Oh no, sugar, that was the wrong <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Sasha White, Landmark Chambers, and I'm dialing in from sunny, rainy Oxfordshire. Uh, Paul Tucker, uh, I'm still reeling from the astonishment that Sasha actually studied law at any point, so I'm delighted <laughs> to have heard that. That uh, makes I, two I, of us. <laughs> uh, I'm dialing in from the Ribble Valley uh, in uh, glorious Lancashire. As a Yorkshireman, uh, that sticks in my gullet, but uh, in the Doomsday book, Lancashire was part of Yorkshire, so I'm just reclaiming my own and doing missionary work. He says that at every inquiry. <laughs> isn't it? Second rate plagiarism. <laughs> and we're, we're very lucky um, today to have a, a very special guest, um, Bridget Roosevelt, a commander of the British Empire, um, one of the country's leading economists whose independent review of planning appeal inquiries led to PINs' as so-called Roosevelt reforms to the inquiry procedure last year. Um, hello, Bridget. And, and where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Wales, so we're, we're spreading our wings here. So this, I've learnt the virtual background thing. This is the view from my front door. Ooh, I'm interested nice. in Wales because that's England, the other side, okay? Ah. So, but I think we'll come back <laughs> to normality. Uh, and um, I'm not a lawyer. And I don't I have no idea why I allowed myself to agree to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very thrilled to, to, to have you on. Um, Great. Well, um, our, our first topic today um, is going to be um, a key planning court case of the week and uh, uh, a poor imitation of, uh, of Kenny Dalgleish as player manager. I'm going to call myself uh, as the first first man up uh, to discuss this. So um, this is a case. The case I want to look at is um, the Court of Appeals judgment uh, in a case called Corbett and, and Cornwall Council. Um, uh, it was something I posted on LinkedIn about and got um, no fewer than 10,000 views of it. So obviously a, an issue, a principle um, that is of interest to a great number of people. And it concerns um, uh, Section 38.6 of the Planning Compulsory Purchase Act 2004, which, as we all know, requires planning decisions to be made in accordance with the de development plan unless material considerations indicate otherwise, Planning 101. Um, but of course, it's not right that any development plan conflict automatically means that there's non accordance with the plan um, for the purpose of Section 38.6. It's long been acknowledged by the courts that development plan policies may pull in different directions and that what matters is whether standing back uh, there's accordance with the plan as a whole, which is possible notwithstanding um, uh, some conflicts. Uh, and whilst it's a, this is a long established legal principle going back to um, uh, when when I was long before I was uh, uh, a barrister, um, it's all too often overlooked uh, and decisions, planning proofs, uh, planning statements on all sides can be prone to a, a leap of logic from there being a 
conflict with a particular policy or policies to non-accordance of plan without considering this principle of accordance with the plan as a whole. And, and the Corbett case illustrates the importance of this uh, principle. The case itself concerned a development of 15 static uh, holiday caravans uh, along with 15 holiday lodges. Uh, which extended an existing holiday park in Cornwall in an AGLV, Area of Great Landscape Value. And uh, the, the case officer's report identified that there was some limited harm to the AGLV, not much, but some limited harm, um, and on a localised level. Uh, and that brought into play policy 14 of the Cornwall Local Plan, uh, which, which says um, that developments will not be permitted, um, e even uh, even if, if they cause harm to the AGLV. So even if there's some limited harm, on the face of that policy, there's a conflict uh, and the development will not be permitted if there's any harm at all. Um, against that, policy five of the same plan provided support for upgrading existing tourism facilities such as the one in play, bearing in mind, of course, that a large part of Cornwall's economy is the tourism industry. Um, and disagreeing with the High Court, Lord Justice Limbon in the Court of Appeal said that the council had been fully entitled to proceed on the basis that the proposal was in accordance with the development plan, despite that conflict with policy 14. Um, the, though policy 14 had unqualified wording, development will not be permitted uh, in, if it causes harm to the AGLV, that didn't mean that policy 14 had uh, automatic primacy over other policies within the plan, such as policy 5, the tourism policy, which was supported development. Uh, and what Lord Justice Limbon held essentially was that whichever policies in any case win the internal tug of war within the development plan uh, for the purposes of informing a conclusion as to whether there is accordance with the plan as a whole, that's a planning judgment for the decision maker in the circumstance of the case. It's not really a matter of hard-edged legal interpretation of the policies in question. And he went on to stress he wasn't saying that a single policy conflict could never lead to non-accordance with the plan as a whole. It might do, but it might not. But the critical point is we should never assume without more that a conflict with one policy or more than one policies means non-accordance with the plan. There's a intermediate step of logic which is to consider what if any consequence does uh, that conflict had. And I just flag up before um, handing over to Sasha to, to comment further on this, that um, this is a principle worth bearing in mind, particularly in the context of tilted balance policies that you often, if not always find now in post framework um, local plans, where the tilted balance is, is effectively incorporated into the development plan, so that um, if, the, if the plan is, is out of date, for example, because there isn't a five year supply, then a tilted balance applies. And if the adverse impacts don't significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits of granting permission, then not only is the plan um, supported by the um, uh, the framework and the tilted balance in the framework, um, but it's also um, supported by the development plan's own built-in tilted balance. Uh, and, in, in, and in that scenario, hello Mary, uh, in that scenario, if the Sorry. tilted balance is in favour of development, then that can override policy conflicts and mean that you're, you're in accordance with the plan as a whole, even if they're individual breaches. And, and an illustration of that, um, and, and I suppose I am uh, bragging here a bit, one of my own cases, um, but um, a case how uncharacteristic. <laughs> Uh, a case I did with uh, Guy Wakeful of Ridge uh, for my friends at Carla and, and Cab International Scheme in Wallingford, South Oxfordshire, where um, Christina Downs, a really brilliant inspector, um, found uh, eight individual policy conflicts with that scheme, nonetheless accordance with the plan as a whole. 
So that's just a, a flavour of, of the application of that principle and something to bear in mind, I think, has added importance in light of the Corbett judgment. Sasha, what, what's your uh, take on the judgment? Well, I, I think it's incredibly seminal. I, I think what's a slightly worried about putting us collectively, apart from Bridget, out of business, because probably the most fertile ground of cross-examination in my career has been planning proofs that focus on the reasons that justify the refusal rather than looking at the development plan as a whole. And it's remarkable how many officers believe that you need to focus on the reasons that justify the refusal rather than doing a proper section verge 86 which looks at all the policies in the round and the point that lord justice Limblom absolutely grappled with and he consistently mm. makes his message is you need to do a weighing and a balance between those policies that pull in one direction and those that pull in the other so i think yeah. for any officer wanting to see a succinct and correct approach to section 386 and the determination of applications read lord justice Limblom's judgment in this case Absolutely. A couple of comments. Um, uh, so, somebody's asked a rather interesting, C Catherine Els has asked, um, does, um, no, so Leary Helm has asked, does this principle of development plan as a whole apply also in the, in the plan making context when you're looking at general conformity of development plan? Probably different, different considerations, but the underlying principle Lord Justice Limbaugh, um, uh highlighted which is this is already planning judgment weighing up to what extent is is a conflict to conflict with consequence i think that is uh, that is certainly something uh, which is applicable there someone asked what does chris keep looking down at i'm assuming chris you're checking that you're wearing trousers in light of um, uh, so hopefully you're there. Uh, that's my Hugh richard task so that's the answer to that question hugh um lots of people asking me to show the video of the american chap throwing a cat in uh, but i don't really want to get struck off the bar for something else i'm going to get struck off the bar i'd rather do it in Far, far more glorious ways than that I'm afraid. frankly so, charlie it's amazing it's taken this long for that absolutely <laughs> so remain remain seated charlie please well, I, I know what i do i always uh, <laughs> I, I do like the fact that somebody once told me impersonating a barrister is a criminal offense that carries a, a potential life sentence but i'm so relieved no one's actually managed to find me out yet I suppose yeah, it has to be recognizable charlie that's the problem it has to be that's true <laughs> and I'm, I'm not <laughs> well yeah. charlie then you'd have nine concurrent sentences frankly right <laughs> Now, um, let's move on from the planning court to um, development plans and um, St Albans lo uh, local plan inspectors wrote to the council a few days ago uh, and Mary, it wasn't good news for St Albans council, was it? No, it, it wasn't. And I, I would like to combine my piece here about the St Albans uh, local plan examination with a, a, a few shout outs, if I may. First of all, to the examination inspectors, two ladies, by the way, gentlemen who did not hesitate to make decisive uh, rulings in a pretty efficient way. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. And also a shout out for Mike Gallimore, my fellow partner at town, because he acted uh, for the promoters of the strategic rail freight interchange at, at Radlett. And that, that actually uh, was a key site in the local plan and one of the things that led to its downfall. And remember also, just to give a bit of context, that this was an examination in a district which had a 94 local plan review. So it had ancient safe policies and it was one of the 15 councils, you may recall, that Sajid Javid was writing to in 2017 and 2018 to get them to submit uh, up-to-date local plans. So eventually, this local plan was submitted after the 24th of January 2019. So that was be, it was being examined under the uh, current MPPF. And it's interesting in particular, uh, I think, for that reason. 
And it was also fairly clear from the outset that the inspectors were, they had a number of issues mm. because as soon as that plan was submitted, they started asking additional questions. Following a three day session, uh, sorry, a three, three days of hearings in January of this year, they issued a, uh, a, a ruling um, indicating that they were very unhappy on a number of matters relating to, in particular, um, the first matter that they were um, concerned about was the Radlett um, site, that being a site which ha had planning permission granted on appeal by the Secretary of State in the Greenbelt for this strategic rail freight infrastructure. And the council was seeking to allocate that site for a significant number of houses, uh, which would have precluded the rail freight interchange coming forward. But the council had not treated the rail freight interchange as a strategic matter, therefore had not consulted on their neighbours uh, about the loss of it. Neither did they regard the allocation of the significant amount of housing in the Greenbelt as a strategic matter, and they didn't consult their neighbours on that either. So there was no consultation on, on those two um, key issues. Um, they also had unmet needs and they couldn't demonstrate that they had been adequately consulting under the duty to cooperate in respect of that. They hadn't prepared their plan in accordance with their statement of community involvement um, because in that they had said they would pr produce a preferred options but they didn't produce a preferred options um, and they fail to provide adequate evidence to justify the exceptional circumstances to allocating, to releasing and then allocating land from the Greenbelt to housing. Um, so uh, there was also a consequential failure to identify, let alone review, uh, reasonable alternatives and indeed sites that were regarded as seemingly credible and obvious reasonable alternatives were not assessed. So, I mean, all in all, a a bit of a disaster, I, I think yeah. it's fair to say. And although there has not been an official uh, letter back to PINs, the councillors, the leaders of the respective political parties at um, St Albans have all made uh, short press statements. You can see them on their websites. They've, none of them have indicated an appetite for challenge. And um, Mike Gallimore tells me that the leader of the council uh, attended a webinar with a consultancy this week in which, uh, again, the leader did not indicate that they had an appetite for challenge. But what, what curiously, what the leader did say was that uh, um, government had known about the strategy. This is um, MHCLG. They'd known about this strategy and they had not said anything um, critical to the council about that strategy. That reminded me of since. Uh, sorry, Seven Oaks. Do you remember Seven Oaks came a cropper last year uh, mm. in respect of the same thing? They weren't allocating uh, land for all their OAN. They had failed to consult with their neighbours uh, in relation to their failure to meet their OAN and asked them could they meet it too, taking mm. the view that there was no chance their Greenbelt neighbours would. And the examination inspector said uh, they'd failed on the duty to cooperate. They got really quite, their leader wrote a really aggressive letter. Uh, I thought it was aggressive to uh, PINs, complaining that PASS, the planning um, advisory service, hadn't identified these issues. Leading council, advising the council, hadn't identified these issues. It was sort of everybody else's fault, but not their fault. <laughs> um, 
and and indeed they tried to interest the Secretary of State within their complaint, but that fell on that fell on deaf ears. And and so following on from Seven Oaks, who by the way also failed to withdraw their local plan, and so last month got their final uh, report from Inspector Karen Baker telling them to withdraw. Um, I think both of these are examples of Greenbelt authorities needing to work harder on duty to cooperate um, with their neighbours, needing to ensure that they ask their neighbours to meet any um, unmet needs and in, in, in the case of uh, St Albans needing to ensure that the duty to cooperate covered all strategic matters. Mm. Um, and they, they did not have any statements of common ground. That's another thing um, which clearly the MPPF 2019 requires you to have, which they did not have. Position statements do not cut it. And Paul, what's your take on this? Is it salvageable or where do they go from here? Oh, yeah, I've put, uh, just, just thinking about what Mary said, apart from all of those issues, the plan was fine. Um, yeah. Extraordinarily. <laughs> Um, I, I should know, I, I, I too would like to shout out to Louise Crosby and Elaine Worthington, who are the inspectors that wrote that report. Mm. Um, uh, th their previous hits included the, uh, a particularly excoriating report in relation to Ottlesford, uh, written around the same sort of time. Mm. Um, robust, uh, thorough and um, hardly unexpected, frankly. What it beautifully illustrates, in my view, is why our system's broken, because the examples that we just talked about are failures of process. We, we used to have something called a principle of subsidiarity, it's a European law thing, so I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say it out loud to some of our audience, um, where <laughs> decisions should be taken at the appropriate level of governance. And, and I fear that what we've had demonstrated for the last decade or so is that the district councils aren't the appropriate level of governance to make decisions about what the housing requirements should be. When I started back in the early 14th century, <laughs> we used to have these little, little thin documents called RPGs, that's before the RSS stuff, on our bizarre foray into cul-de-sacs and examining those and they'd have numbers in they'd have numbers for the metropolitan districts they'd have numbers for the counties and then once the district county district councils got the numbers it was their job to allocate sites we used to have model policies as well so it used to be quite easy to to be advising authorities to be able to bring local plans forward because they had the figure they had the model policies and they then just had to get on with what this what the uh, the sites were and we used to have a principle from a case called electricity supply nominees where the presumption was the plan was fine and it was up to an objector to show which bit of the plan was a problem and to demonstrate duty burden of proof was on them to demonstrate why it was rubbish in land use terms that was much much easier than this nebulous soundness notion which gets us down all of these these cul-de-sacs please don't misunderstand me it's been great for work over the last decade yeah. um, but i've started to have enough of it and i'd like to go back to normal please Thanks, Paul. Uh, Mary, we've had a, quite a few comments. I wonder whether you've changed your name. Uh, I must say, I'm probably not the only one of our parents. When, when, when the black screen came up with, a, with an unknown name, I was braced for the porn bombing to start. But um, Mercer. Can I just explain that Eleanor Hillier is my daughter? I see. <laughs> it's a great relief to know that it was you and not, not the beginning of some, some onslaught. Uh, we must move on. And uh, we're going to move on to uh, the key appeal out from the last few days. And um, well, last uh, last week, Chris, you had the pleasure of of telling us uh, about Paul's great success in the the Seashell Trust Greenbelt case. Whilst Paul tried not to grin too hard, uh, and Paul, this week I gather it, it's payback time. Yeah, I, I've been asked to read this by by a Christopher from Cheltenham. <laughs> this was a remarkable decision, fought against the odds, and brilliantly demonstrates the ability of the advocate for the appellant. Is that right? Sorry, I'm just. 
Genuinely, yeah. actually, it was a, a cracking decision. I should say it's a decision in South Oxfordshire. South Oxfordshire is a district with very little controversy, generates very <laughs> little work for the planning profession, um, apart from not signing up to the agreed distribution of housing need, the most stop-start plan ever produced, multiple re refusals and appeals, <laughs> and the promise of an EIP uh, coming up later on this year, which will be the biggest bun fight of my professional career. This decision actually is interesting because this decision resulted in outline planning permission for 500 houses in the Greenbelt, um, where, the, where the Secretary of State ultimately decided very special circumstances existed, but also that there were benefits in Greenbelt terms in terms of openness, <coughs> that there were benefits in heritage terms, and there was overall compliance with the development plan. Um, it really is, if I may say so, being seriously, it's an absolute slam dunk victory uh, for the appellants in relation to that. Uh, I, I would, however, wish to point out, um, and this is perhaps important in terms of the nature of the case, the consultants were Avison Young, the inspector was Mr. D.M. Young, counsel <laughs> for the appellant was Mr. Christopher Young. So I'm guessing if you weren't a member of the Young family, you, you were a bit of a disadvantage on this one. In fact, it gets worse than that. There was a chap arguing about heritage called Mr. Kevin Heritage, and it was signed by a Mr. Lynch on behalf of the Secretary of State. So. Either comedy, comedy name, or a member of the Young family, and you had no chance. So I feel sorry for Hugh Flanagan, who was counsel for the authority. What well, I would say, Owerton, <laughs> to one of the Young family to explain this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, um, look, you know, the inspector is called Dominic Young, and I may, need to make absolutely clear he is no relation at all, apart from my half brother. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And it's right to say uh, it's a good decision. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. But to be fair, the, the consultants had already won this before we'd gone out to bat. Um, when barristers are involved in cases where we win, we like to think it's us. Uh, but actually, the consultants had won it. They'd got a. They'd worked since 2016 on a uh, with the officers. Uh, the officers wrote a very positive report, even though the site was in the green belt, and ended up recommending for their members that they allocate the site. So, to a certain extent, all the hard work was done uh, before uh, I came out to bat. That's credit to uh, to Rob Gardner at uh, Avonston Young and um, and Steph uh, Eastwood as well. A couple of things just about the case, if I may, although I can't really do justice to the case in a couple of minutes. And that's why, Charlie, I've, I've, after the programme, I've got a two-hour special just on the case. <laughs> hundred slides, if anybody wants to stay on. Um, and there's lots of space on it, apparently, as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. Um, just, just a few quick points. Okay, the first of all, the inspector found a lot of the policies out of date. The council were arguing against that. But he found eight policies out of date. He found the development strategy out of date, the housing distribution, housing um, numbers, uh, landscape protection, greenbelt policy he found out of date. That's something the Supreme Court had talked about in the Rich for Suffolk Coastal case as being unlikely, but he found that out of date. Um, and uh, all the conservation policies he found out of date. So a lot of policies out of date, which obviously helped with the, um, the Wavenden basket. Also, he found no conflict with the policies. So although we were putting 500 houses in the green belt, the reality is that the inspector found there was no harm um, in terms of impact on the environment, largely because removing a lot of unsightly buildings, including if you've ever driven down the M40 and the A40 along there, you'll see a 10 storey tower. And that was what was being removed. Um, and also in terms of previously developed land, a key issue was that um, 
this was a campus and the inspector extended the PDL to cover the university's playing field. So it ended up that all but about 15% of the site was judged to be previously developed land and then applying paragraph 145G uh, for the enthusiast um, of the MPPF, um, he found that the reality was that the site was appropriate development, say for that 14%, and for the remainder he found very special circumstances. The last point though, just very quickly, is interestingly, both the Secretary of State and the Inspector found that the proposal complied with the development plan, that mm. despite the fact that it was a lot of houses in the Greenbelt, the Inspector found that it complied with paragraph 11C, so it was consistent with the development plan and planning permission should be granted um, promptly. The Secretary of State disagreed. Um, although he found it complied with the development plan, he said 11C only applies if the development plan is up to date and South Oxfordshire's plan is many things, but not up to date. So he didn't apply 11C, but luckily for us, the inspector found that the tilted balance applied anyway and uh, 11D applied. Um, I won't go through that whole process, but he obviously found the most important policies were out of date and, um, and found a lot of appropriate developments and then found very special circumstances as well. So a really, a really comprehensive and helpful inspector's report. Absolutely. And of course, it's no coincidence that um, that decision came out, I think, was it a day after the Seashell Trust case? And a clear message. And we're going to come back later on to the issue of... Yeah. of or leadership MHCLG can be it, it, it came out on the same day that South Oxfordshire asked for a, a relaxation of the five-year land supply, Charlie, which is a, a bit <laughs> ironic, really. It did. So it's a clear indication of, of the extent of leadership and direction that uh, Robert Jenwick's going to give and and, uh, and to be welcomed. Uh, get your get your PDL greenfield site greenbelt sites out. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm can, saying, I, can I just bar, one second, Sash? Let me just tell you this: that we have a term at the bar known as a um, a beauty parade, where barristers pitch for a particular project. I must confess, I lost the beauty parade for this particular project to to Chris. Um, and worse still, it, this uh, this wasn't the only time I've lost a beauty parade recently to one of my fellow panelists. Um, I lost an, another beauty parade a few weeks ago to, to Mr. Blackburn 2020 himself, uh, Paul G. Tucker. Now, why do I mention to uh, an audience of four the fact that I have been judged to be less beautiful than my two colleagues? Well, um, it gives me an excuse to tell you the reasons why I was told that I was not as beautiful as Paul Tucker QC. I was, told, now, I, I was told that the clients wanted an older man uh, with more grey hairs. Uh, and I think that overall is a score draw, don't you, Paul? I'll shake on that, Charlie. Cheers. <laughs> Sash, uh, you wanted to say something, mate? No, I, I wanted to say, Charlie, in view of the time, I think we should leave Park HLS uh, yes. next week because it's such a major topic. And frankly, I certainly want to hear from Bridget. So I suggest we, we hand over to Chris and Bridget to do their segment. I think that's a very good idea, not least because one of the things I was going to say is coming up next week for discussion is the Milton Keynes uh, decision that came out a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. Uh, a recreation farm uh, decision where Milton Keynes were found to have uh, have a five-year supply uh, in a very thorough decision letter. So that seems like an eminently sensible idea. So um, we now uh, welcome our, our first uh, special guest slot of, of our show, um, Bridget Rosewell, who we've introduced before. Hello again, Bridget. Um, Hello. And um, Chris, uh, you, you've got um, uh, some questions that you're going to um, raise with Bridget for, for her comment. 
Yeah, Bridget, welcome. Thank you very much for coming uh, on Have We Got News? That's very, very good of you. Uh, so thank you very much from all of us. Okay. That's okay. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. And so uh, this is not cross-examination, just for the avoidance of doubt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Parkinson type questions. Okay. No, I'm sure all of you do good cross examinations rather than the. Um, I've I've been the victim of poor ones as well as good ones <laughs> yes. in my time. David Cooper was very keen to join in and cross examine you, Bridget, but uh, I had to break it to him. That's not quite how the webinar format works. Sorry, David. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry, David. So, Bridget, my my first question is: a year on the. Um, the recommendations you've made have been implemented largely by PINs. We'll come on to what hasn't been implemented a bit later. Well, how do you feel um, that it is working and whether your recommendations have been followed? Uh, yes, most of the recommendations have been followed and they turned out to be much easier to implement than anybody had thought when we started because most of them were about putting in place things which were already supposed to happen but simply didn't. But actually, I think the most important thing that changed and has had the biggest impact is the early appointment of an inspector and the introduction of a case conference so that everybody knows, including the inspector and appellants and the LPA, what is actually supposed to go on and can debate how they're going to do it. Whether the implementation of that is always working as we would like or as, as you guys would like is, is slightly another matter. But it seems to me. If we get that system to work properly, then all in, all appeals actually, and through to inquiry or whatever hearing roundtable, the written reps, blah blah uh, uh, that they use, all of that should be better. Good. Well, we certainly think there is success. I know the development industry is extremely pleased with the fact that we can now be at inquiry in sixteen weeks, as long as you get your start date letter, as uh, as some of us got today, and. Um, my next question really is, in the current climate, um, obviously there's a lot of difficulties in the current situation, what approach do you think PINs should be taking? I think PINs can afford to be fairly um, imaginative and indeed uh, push forward on trying to maintain impetus of doing things more quickly. Now clearly doing moving to virtual is more difficult when you've got different LPAs, it's the LPA's job to find a location, how are you actually going to do that? And clearly they've been concerned about uh, concerns about fair access, but everybody's got a phone. Mm. And in fact, if people are shielded and they're vulnerable, they should they've got fairer access in a in a virtual environment than they would have to when they couldn't get to a real one in any case. So I think that we can be we should encourage we should all be encouraging pins and I'm myself encouraging pins to move forward as quickly as possible. Because it'll be a while, I think, before you have a real, um, a, a, a physical inquiry, I suspect. Site visits can happen a bit more easily, but it's going to take a while. So we need to really move on this and make sure that they are done effectively. Okay, can I ask, um, you were obviously very uh, heavily involved in discussing matters with PINs throughout your review. Are you currently having a dialogue with them at the moment? Yeah, yeah, I've had a conversation with them. Uh, well, I've, in fact, after I listened to you guys last week, that's what I did. I got in touch with PINs and said, can I help? What can I do to, to help move this forward? And to give them, um, you know, they, 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 they're, it's a very widespread organisation. You've got lots of different kinds of inspectors. 
to give them the the courage and the imagination to pick this up and to um, have the willingness to take a few risks i think yeah. in, in implementing these things it's difficult when you're a government agency to take risks uh you know it's not encouraged uh under these circumstances it has to be done yeah, I mean, I think that that culture point comes across very clearly from what we're understanding and hearing from the market. But but equally, I think the industry is really keen to help the planning inspector. There's a lot of knowledge out there, a lot of experience. Uh, barristers, for example, we know all about virtual proceedings because they're carrying on in court. I mean, would you encourage planning inspector to reach out and? Uh, yeah. I mean, they they say that people have been um, helpful in setting up pilot ideas um but they probably then go back into a bit of their bubble and and try and work it all out and uh, i think just trying to get that opening out uh, and so that we can do this quickly and effectively and help the lpas because they're the other party in all of this after all to uh, to be able to deliver virtual inquiries or hearings or roundtables or, or whatever it is and giving inspectors the right training to mm. choose the right the right route because that's the other bit which may not be working quite right um but it's really important that you know the inspector that you can have that choice of route whether we're getting the right balance is uh something that i'm getting a little bit of, of feedback on okay i mean there's two schools of thought really on this which is one wait till you've got a, a solution or system that is near perfect and then roll it out uh, or another school of thought, which some of the courts are doing, is um, not quite trial and error, but get something that seems to be adequate for a number of cases and learn lessons. Some, some there will be appeals. Things may not always go right, but things may also go um, go well in other cases and learn the lessons and be a little bit less riskless. What, what's your feel for uh, how that? For, really harking back to what you were saying a few moments ago, how that balance should be struck by PIN. Do you think they're getting it right right now or, or are there areas for improvement? Well, I think that your experience is more valid than, than mine on that. If you feel that it could go faster or there are ways that it could go faster. I think PINs feel that there's, there's got so many different variants and varieties and flavours of, mm. of appeals and, and inquiries and, and different delivery mechanisms that they have to provide that it's it's quite difficult to triage those mm. so i think help in, in getting that triage right would be quite helpful my, my last question but and then i'm going to open it up to to the others if i may my last question is just very briefly longer term what you, you talk in your report one of your recommendations is about greater use of technology things have responded by saying they're accelerating what they had planned for later on in the year what's your view about a longer term use of technology in inquiries I don't see why you couldn't do a lot of uh, work with more virtual um, capacity, but but this is not the same. And at the end of the day, there will need to be the need to get, we, we will want to go back to having people in the same room. There's no doubt that it works differently if you have people in the same room, but there's probably much more of a mix and match. And again, mm. at a case conference with the inspector, you can then decide this is the way we're going to do this and for things that really need proper cross-examination we will all need to be in the same room and people need to see that that if you like justice is see that justice is done but that shouldn't delay when it's difficult to find rooms and so on and so forth um but don't 
underestimate the difficulties of technology for some parties. You know, yeah. not, although every member of the public can probably get on, um, you know, experience of some LPAs who really, you know, they, li they live in something of a technological dark age and they don't have the resource and we don't have the funding to make sure they can do this kind of thing. So, you know, we, we just need to be a little bit, um, little bit kinder to okay, some that's of the really, really and support them and get the, one of the things that I wanted to do was get the developers to be able to provide rooms, mm. for example, rather mm. than it being the local authority having to do it. There's no reason why the developer or the appellant or yourselves can't provide the technical facility to make it. Absolutely, absolutely. We couldn't agree more. Now, I'm going to throw that open to the other uh, panellists as well. And to start with Sasha, um, and uh, I think you've got a question, Sasha. Yes, I do, Bridget. From your, from your reading all the submissions to you and, and your understanding of the playing appeal system, are you a believer in the right to cross-examination and the benefits it brings? I'm a believer in the right cross-examination on the right topic, absolutely. <laughs> there was, and, and I had no real pushback. So when we would, I went round and talked to a whole variety of lawyers and appellants and local authorities and, and you know, right around the country, everybody said we can do this better. Everybody said not only for being suitable for cross-examination, but everybody said that a public process is absolutely essential to deliver fairness and, and democracy. So yes, always there's, a, a, but I think it's up to you guys to make the case and to work with the inspectors to get the right things to be cross-examined and not just cross-examined for the, for the sake of it, which I have seen happen. Thanks Chris. Yeah, okay, and uh, over to Mary, I think you've got a question as well. Yeah, can I just start by uh, with an observation? Last week, Charlie was talking about a, a sort of mock trial that they did in Landmark, where they deployed um, Conworth, Robert Conworth, to be the, to the judge in a mock trial. I, I think it's a great shame that in the last sort of five, six weeks, there hasn't been an opportunity for the planning bar, uh, professional consultants and pins to come together to do a sort of mock um, virtual inquiry, a mock virtual hearing. We're hearing a lot about inquiries, but there's some quite big things that are being pushed off into hearings. And I would like to see virtual hearings rather than no hearings. So uh, uh, we can all learn some lessons, which then could perhaps input into those pilots. So why can't we have a, a bit more active cooperation in, in, in that department? Um, and my, why not? Indeed. And my, my second, well, my question really, Bridget, is what about local plan examinations? You know, they're grinding to a halt. Right. Well, I have a, I have a more fundamental problem with local plans, which is <laughs> I think the whole system is broken and we should, we should abolish the local planning system and, and do something completely different. And I, was, I made a contribution to the, planning, the policy change thing on, on planning, but we probably shouldn't go there. Um, <laughs> I think that's for the white paper, isn't it? We have to have the, the examinations. And again, I really don't see why those can't be done on a, they should also go ahead. And we should not allow what's happening at the moment to allow the further delays in this horrendous process which goes on. I know, okay, we've all made money out of it, but it's just stupid. But while we've got it, we've got to make sure that it continues to happen. Housing need is not going to go away just no. because We've got had we've had a, a, a disease, and indeed, getting construction back on track and accelerated again is going to be really important. There's no case for delay, either on numbers or on EIPs, in my view. Agreed. 
Okay, and uh, Paul, I think you've got a question as well. Yeah, I do, and it's a more nitty-gritty question, which really follows on from the questions that you've answered before, Bridget, um, which is, when we're um, going to case management conferences or listening to case management conferences, what tends to happen is topics are pushed into roundtables. Um, so can we deal with design, landscape, um, ecology by a roundtable, and highways and planning by cross-examination? And in, in reality, the, the world is more sophisticated than that. There are some things of each of those topics which are amenable to cross-examination and some things which are judgments. And I absolutely deprecate cross-examination on what's really judgment matters. And yet the sophistication of that subdivision doesn't seem to be coming through into the system. We're being pushed into topics rather than into are there areas upon which cross-examination would be worthwhile within topics. I'm really, really interested in your view because of how the so system I is operating. I strongly resisted having a topic-based menu. I didn't want that because you're absolutely right. There are things which are judgment. There are things which are methodology. There are things which are policy. There are things which are legal issues. You know, within any topic, there might be a whole variety of those different things. So it shouldn't be topic by topic. Uh, and if it's developing that way, and, and there is a tendency, after all, for people to want nice, clean rules. And just to um, you know, okay, tick tick tick. Um, we're all you know, we're we're all we can all be guilty of that. But I think that that is that's not appropriate. And the application of judgment to what is dealt with, how, and therefore helping inspectors and training inspectors to be able to do that is going to be really important. And I feel the whole purpose of this review was to get things done more quickly so we could deliver more houses. So that's the other part, the context. Yeah. And the policy context for inspectors is also something that we really need to make sure happens. Can I just ask you, Bridget, I've been looking at the chat. We've had lots and lots of questions. Uh, we can't deal with them all now. But um, Gemma Jenkinson uh, asked, uh, she received an email today from Bromsgrove Council. Um, and they said, I'm afraid the officers, in terms of their local plan, they just don't have the technology at home to progress this. What would, you, what would be your response to that if um, if you thought that was leading to a delay in progressing the planning system well at one level get it <laughs> at another level um i do have some sympathy because there are security and cyber issues around people using their own equipment and so on which people can get very hung up on there was a whole thing about people you know crashing into zoom meetings and doing god knows what so yeah um i have some sympathy but not a lot because i think there are ways around this you just need a bit more imagine you just need to encourage people to get imagination we've got to progress this stuff great super back to you charlie thanks chris um bridget um a lot's been said about whether um remote proceedings uh might um be detrimental to members of the public uh being involved uh, particularly those who are less familiar with the technology do you think um in the longer term, technology might be able to be used in conjunction with an in-person inquiry to, to widen the net of, of members of the public involved because um, I, I don't think uh, it's inaccurate to say that um, the, the category of the demographic of members of the public who tend to turn up at inquiries tend to be those who, who are uh, retired simply because they have the time and the ability to turn up. Not always, but tends to be. Um, do you think that actually using tech might enable Mabel, those with childcare issues, those who can't get time off work, um, those with mobility issues and access issues um, to participate who currently can't? And, and if so, um, uh, do you have any views on whether that would be something that would enhance the process? 
well, it certainly would enhance it. And I made that point earlier that if there are people who, who say can't get out of the house or can't get away from the work, then allowing a, a window where you could get onto something like, like this process would be helpful. But the other thing I think that is really important about the technology is that we will need to think about because it's actually it takes up much more bandwidth is how you actually present a project. Mm. So being able to show people what it is like too many of the, the I'm sorry, it's a bit of a, 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 a hobby horse. Mm. We show things without people and not in a people eye view for, mm. for developers and actually getting it into a people person again to show a fly through or what it would be like to go through this, that that is actually would be a great use of technology. And we I, help I, people I, understand what it is you're, you've got actually got in a proposal. I agree with you, Bridget. And I think actually this is a great opportunity, which we might have taken five years to get you know get from a to b we could get to b a lot quicker potentially because this is being forced upon us and i and i also think there's a great opportunity you know for consultation and for uh, new technology to be used in public consultation on applications well so, so start right at the beginning more effectively and or linkedin or facebook or or whatever there are many ways instead of just the piece of paper that they put on the lamppost many ways that you could reach people and you're right we should be using this interruption and i'm doing this with other businesses elsewhere what what can we take out of this mm. what have we learned how can we do things differently how can we move forward which isn't to say that we don't want you know we will want to meet each other again i was looking forward to having a glass of wine in person with you all in due course yes hey. Cheers, so me too here sorry about that, already. i have to say i have to say <laughs> but, but we there's so much variety in what we can do yeah i have to say bridget it's it's really refreshing to hear your views and a real privilege as well and i i for one would like to invite you back on the show so that we can hear your views about local plans we don't have time for that now but will you come back on the show of course yes hey. fantastic thank you we've, we've got that on, on record now bridget so i'll, I'll remember to have um, but i'll need a glass of wine in order to be able to talk about local plans there <laughs> Send the address, Sasha will send it to Monmouth, so it's not a problem. <laughs> we must move on because our witching hour is rapidly approaching and our next topic is, is nudge of the week. And Paul, who are you seeking to encourage this week with a gentle nudge? Yeah, and it really is a, a gentle nudge, but it follows on from everything else that we've said so far. On the 23rd of, uh, of April, was it? No, 28th of April, forgive me. So a couple of days ago, we got the press release from PINS telling us that finally we've got pilots or rather we've got one pilot coming forward on the 11th of May and then we've got a few more pilots coming forward and then three months after we start the process we'll get a good practice guide and then within six months uh, who knows where we'll be that's not fast enough uh, it's not fast enough because the, there is a backlog of development there is a development industry that needs to be bringing things forward elsewhere um, litigation is moving forward um, and the courts have been very clear to say that where courts have stepped forward uh, and taken risks and used technology, I've done a whole um, uh, judicial review, start to finish and judgment and came second, uh, all by telephone, uh, which is a public hearing. Um, courts are prepared to take the risks. And I can say now that through, through this medium that the courts are bound to, to support PINs if they are doing their best in these certain situations. Um, uh, my, my organization, our organization, PIBA, uh, tried to move very quickly to try and say to PINs, you can do this, and this is how legally you can do this. There are now all the hundreds of members of the Planning Environmental Bar Association, all at one, 
uh, coming together saying we're, help, we're here to help PIMS. I'm sure the Law Society and the RTPR are exactly the same. We want to nudge this process along, not just for the immediate future whilst we're all in lockdown and we have to do it this way, but coming out of lockdown and then into the future because there will be some circumstance in which we can do it properly. So that's my nudge of the week and let's hope it works. Yeah, well, I, I, amen to that, Paul. If, I mean, we can, if we can get five barristers to run a webinar for, for many thousands of people, pin one for public inquiry. <laughs> Amen to that. I, I know that there are, are some people from PINs listening today and that's meant um, both through PIBA but also individually. We're here to help. Um, you're even, um, if anybody's interested, even coming on the show and, and discussing it constructively on that. You're very welcome to do that too if that's of any interest. I was going there to... There is no payment though, just, just to be clear, yes. no payment for guests. None at all. No, no absolutely. Well, Charlie, Charlie, Chris is offering all sorts of invites. I'm going to offer one. I know we've got a presence from the chief executive so it'd be delightful to have her presence on a future webinar we'd be delighted to have her they're not webinars sasha i keep telling you they're not <laughs> webinars um, uh, i was i must add um some happy news because um I'm not quite sure what co co COVID are, didn't you call it COVID ours? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, excellent. Something that was that was vexing me earlier in the week, but I'm pleased to say uh, I've got happy news in this regard, was that the inspectorate were um, engaging perhaps of not issuing start letters for new um, appeals, which of course meant that the various pre-inquiry steps that could be gone through without meeting a person, the, the local authorities' deadline for a statement of case, any Rule 6 involvement, deadline for statement of common ground, the case management phone hearing, proof, so everything that's needed to get something inquiry ready was put on ice, which would only obviously exacerbate the, the COVID delay. I'm pleased to say it, things seem to have changed today. <coughs> I've certainly in two cases um, that are affected by this got start date letters. Uh, Chris, I think you alluded to the fact that you've had something similar. So um, just a shout out to those at PINs who've um, responsible for the change of, of TAC. Um, thank you for that because it will mean that appeals and, and parties on all sides of the debate will mm. be able to get their, get their cases ready to go for when they are able to, to take place either by a virtual inquiry or, or, or in person. So that's a really good bit of news and something that you know, a lot of people will be celebrating uh, today and, and later in the week. Charlie, can I just say something about, about that? I think there are two things I just want to flag up for next week. I know one of them is you promised each week to wear an even more outrageous shirt. Yes, I've got another one next week where Paul and I might go down the Six Nations route, we'll see. But also I, I would like to <laughs> make a plea that we do do HLS need because I know that's exercising everyone in the industry. Absolutely, absolutely, and we'll we'll deal with that in detail. I think you're absolutely right, Sasha. That it's worth us doing with that separately next week rather than in a cursory fashion today. Um, so we'll do that next week. Having regard to the Milton Keynes decision, a few other things that are coming up. Uh, we discussed Greenbelt quite a lot um, today in the context of, of the appeal, the latest appeal decision in the South Oxfordshire case, and also uh, Mary's uh, discussion of of St Albans. Um, two um, court cases on Greenbelt in the plan making process to be aware of. Um, Judgment is, I think it's fair to say, uh, I don't mean critically of the judge, overdue on the High Court challenge, the lead site allocations plan. There was a hearing in the first week of March, and I think actually Mary, your, one of your colleagues was, was on the other side to me for the acting for the claimants. I was for one of the, the house builder beneficiaries of an allocation. Yeah, Simon Ricketts. 
absolutely. And um, and it surely can't be long now till judgment is ready. Uh, it was heard in the first week of March, so coming up for two months ago. Um, clearly, once that, once judgment does come out, uh, that will be one for us to discuss because that goes to the heart of uh, the approach to exceptional circumstances for release of Lisa Greenbelt. And it's not the only court case coming up because there's also a challenge to a um, to the Wickham local plan by a local residence group that was recently granted permission to appeal uh, to, to proceed to a full hearing in the High Court. I'm told by my colleague John Lytton, um, who's acting for Catesby in that case, um, the court's been in touch today, suggesting dates in July. So it seems that certainly by the end of the year and possibly by the summer, we'll have two further really important uh, High Court decisions uh, on the approach to exceptional circumstances for Greenbelt release. Um, so watch this space and obviously if we do get a judgment that's public in the public domain by this time next week or the episode thereafter then one of us will uh, discuss uh, the Leeds uh, uh, challenge in that case. Um, that's all for now, save to remind you that um, the Q&A continues on our LinkedIn page, please follow it because we'll put all the updates on there. Um, so please, there's a little post from uh, one of us saying, add your Q&A uh, or comments to that. We'll do our best to get back to you uh, on that. Um, same ID, same time, same place next week, same password. Um, so hopefully that'll be easier to follow. Thank you for joining us. Uh, have a great evening. I haven't got any beer left. I drank it all in the first 10 minutes, um, but uh, have a lovely evening. Remember to donate. Remember to donate. And yeah. remember to donate absolutely to either the NHS yeah. for our carers or for a local charity of your choice please join us next week cheers cheers bye everybody bye well that was the show we hope you enjoyed it if so uh, please do consider making a charity donation and if you want to watch us as well as listen the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday and it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.